afternoon everyone. Thanks for joining us today for our, our May Lunch and Learn. We This is the first one where we've had the um, topic of, of Ask the Expert. So um, hopefully I'll be able to give you the information that you need. Um, but as always, I'm happy to take any questions at the end. Now, there have been a couple of, um, of, of our clients have sent in questions. Um, um, we haven't been able to include all of those questions in um, this afternoon's Lunch and Learn. Um, but most of them we have been able to. Uh, if there's any other questions at the end, I'm happy to um, to answer those questions. So as a bit of a disclaimer, the answers we're providing today uh, and the questions that we've received is not intended to constitute any legal advice. Instead, it's information for general purposes only. We strongly encourage all businesses to seek legal advice for their individual circumstances. So the first question um, that's been sent to us is do you have to pay all allowances in the award if you're paying above hourly rates of pay? So there's a couple of dependencies here. Um, the first dependent will be um, the contract and whether it specifically states that the over award component uh, in the award rate in, in the rate of pay that you're paying them exempts the requirements to pay any entitlements and allowances under the award. So the contract must be specific in terms of um, what um, allowances are not able to be paid or not payable. And it also depends on how much overward payment there is and whether it's enough to cover off on the allowances and entitlements. As I say, they are the dependencies. Now, often employers will mistakenly think just because they're paying a rate of pay that's higher than that, that what's prescribed in the award, that they don't need to pay any allowances or other entitlements contained in the award. For example, weekend penalty rates or overtime. Um, this is not necessarily correct. When we're working with a client um, and in the absence of an exemption rate, now an exemption rate is often contained in the manager's provisions in the club's award, and also there is a um, um, an exemption uh, percentage for managers in the hospitality award as well. We would consult the award and determine the entitlements, um, request a, a mock or a typical roster, normally for about a month, um, to see if that over award component is sufficient. Then we calculate the earnings, including allowances, overtime, and then uh, and, and other weekend penalties, for example, then consider including an additional amount to ensure the client is not at risk um, for underpayment of wages. We then recommend, and it's often stated in the um, annual um, or annualised salary provisions of many awards, um, that we uh, revisit um, at a six month and a 12 month mark to ensure there's no um, underpayment of wages. The next question I hope that answers that one. Um, the next question is, do you have to accept a long resignation notice if the employee's contract says only one week? Um, generally, you're required to accept the notice as provided by the employee when resigning. Um, contracts often um, provide a minimum notice period, um, but if they're providing more than that, for example, uh, I'm sorry, and also I should also mention that the um, the notice period it often is often um, uh, contained within the national employment standards in the um, in the Fair Work Act. Um, 
So the employee, for example, says, uh, uh, sorry, the employee under their contract or under the NES is only required to provide, let's say, two weeks notice. But they provide you with one month's notice. So their intention is to leave their um, place of employment in a month's time, and they've probably um, uh, budgeted for that, etc., etc. So, um, are you reply are you required to accept that notice? The answer is generally yes, because uh, that's their intention. If you terminate uh, before that, or you force that resignation before that, then it can be considered to be or construed as being a constructive dismissal. Uh, and the dismissal is at the onus is on the onus of the employer, so you can um, sit down and try and negotiate uh, that period down. However, the employee can provide um, notice as they deem appropriate, provided it's the same as or more than what's in their contract or indeed in the NES. Um, hopefully, that answers that question. All right. So, what to do if staff? are on workers' compensation for a long time. Um, and this has been a vexed question for um, a long period of time. Now, the answer to this, there's a couple of, um, of answers to that. And it depends on what state you're in. You cannot terminate an employee for being on workers' compensation within the following uh, time periods. And that is um, six months in New South Wales, and in Queensland, it's 12 months. So you cannot terminate a person because they're on workers' compensation within those periods of time. However, um, when these time frames have passed or you've reached that point and they're still on workers' comp, you cannot simply terminate the employee. What you need to do is get advice from a medical practitioner, uh, normally in the form of a report, as to whether or not the employee is likely to return to pre-injury duties in the foreseeable future. They are the terms that we use in any correspondence. So at, let's say you're in New South Wales, uh, an employee um, at the six month mark is still on workers' compensation and you wanna work out what you need to do with, um, with that employee. Um, you would then, at that six-month mark or, or later than that, if, if necessary, uh, send the employee a letter saying uh, you've been on uh, workers' compensation for a significant period of time. Um, we uh, need to um, uh, make uh, workforce planning for the future. Can you please advise us and please provide a medical report as to whether or not you are likely to return to pre-injury duties in the foreseeable future. Now, nine times out of 10, um, particularly in, in any dealings I've had, um, the, you'll get a medical report that comes back that says that the employee is unlikely to return to pre-injury duties in the foreseeable future, in which case uh, you can then move to terminate. Um, on the very odd occasions where the medical practitioner comes back and says, yes, uh, this employee is likely to return to pre-injury duties uh, within the next month. Uh, then there's nothing you can do at that point in time apart from um, uh, wait out that, that one month period. But you should continue um, to provide or keep pressure on that employee 
or, or indeed that medical practitioner to keep providing um, uh, reports to you. Now, the other important point is that often when we write this initial letter saying, uh, are you likely to return to pre-injury duties in the foreseeable future, we end up with a workers' compensation medical certificate. That's not sufficient. Uh, we then have to go back to um, that medical practitioner, back to that employee, and say um, a, a, a medical certificate is insufficient. What we need is details on whether or not that employee is likely to return to, to uh, pre-injury duties in the foreseeable future. So uh, that's a very important point. Um, we can assist in the drafting of any of that, that correspondence and, uh, and put in place a strategy, to, hopefully, to try and get um, a, a, a required outcome. So the next question is, we've been paying, uh, overpaying an employee, can we ask them to pay it back? Uh, this also has been a very vexed question for the past um, um, number of years, certainly that I've been involved in, in industrial relations. Um, and retrieving overpayments is always a tricky process. The best practice approach is to have a discussion with the employee um, about the overpayment and explain how it occurred and the amount of overpayment and request that they sign an agreement to repay the overpayment um, over a period of time, particularly if it's significant. So employers should not be deducting the overpayment from an employee's wages without their express agreement um, from the employee and this should be in writing. To do otherwise would be a breach of section 384 of the Act, um, sorry, 324 of the Act, uh, and that says that a deduction is authorised in writing by the employee and principally for the employee's benefit. Um, uh, if the employee doesn't agree to repaying the amount, there's not a lot you can do. Um, and it's for this reason that we recommend to our clients to have a robust process in place for payroll, including considering um, an annual um, payroll audit to ensure the business is compliant. Um, and needless to say, and, and many, particularly our clients in Queensland, would be aware of the, the famous debacle um, with Queensland Health, where thousands of Queensland Health staff were underpaid and overpaid in 2010 due to a new payroll system <coughs> not being properly tested. Um, those who were overpaid were asked to pay back the overpayments within two years. Uh, they were again in the news in March of this year for a similar issue, which affected fewer staff um, this time around. Um, Queensland Health <coughs> is not asking employees to pay back uh, any um, of their overpayments uh, this time around. So that's a very important point. Um, we can undertake payroll audits for you, um, and we can do that um, uh, for a minimal cost, uh, and um, we'll provide you with a full report as to any um, breaches or underpayment or overpayment, etc., etc. Um, the next question is, do we need to remove confidential pay clauses from existing employment contracts? This is um, a new area, a new issue. Um, under the Secure Jobs, Better Pay Amendment legislation that, went, that passed through Parliament in December of last year, 
employers are obligated to ensure that any employment contracts entered into after 7 December 2022, which is when the legislation was introduced, do not contain pay secrecy clauses. However, for those employment contracts that were in place prior to 7 December of last year, there's no obligation to remove the pay secrecy clauses. These contracts will still be enforceable until such time as they are varied. Uh, if variations are made to existing contracts, the pay secrecy clauses must be removed. Otherwise, you'll be in breach of the Fair Work Act. So, uh, in my view, um, you should go and have a look at uh, your existing contracts just to make sure there's no uh, pay confidential confidentiality clauses contained in your existing agreements. Uh, if they are there, remove them. All right. The next question is, do we have to ask staff before we do rosters if they can work on a public holiday? Um, again, this is uh, a new phenomenon. Uh, and this is in light of the recent uh, federal court decision. Uh, and our advice is that you post the rosters in advance uh, as you would normally do. Um, so I'll just backtrack there uh, one for one point. What the federal court decision was, was that um, under the Fair Work Act, you, an employee is entitled to be absent on a public holiday. However, you can ask a, um, a, an employee to work or demand an employee work um, if you are open on that public holiday. Uh, this is particularly the case in those, um, uh, those areas or those industries where there's a general expectation that you will be open on a public holiday, for example, in the hospitality industry, retail, or indeed emergency services. So um, our advice is that you post the rosters in advance, as you would normally do. If a public holiday falls during that roster period, you should include a note that says something to the effect of, you've been rostered to work on a public holiday. If you do not wish to work, um, on that public holiday, you should contact HR or payroll and provide reasons as to why you should provide reasons as to why you do not wish or cannot work on a public holiday. So send out the rosters and with that roster is a note that says you're rostered on a public holiday. If you don't want to work or you cannot work on a public holiday uh, or that public holiday, you need to provide uh, reasons why. Such, as I said before, such a request would be reasonable if there's an expectation that you would be trading on a public holiday, for example, retail, hospitality and emergency services. The reasons for the employee not wishing to work on a public holiday should be good and cogent and reasonable, for example, family responsibilities. It's simply not sufficient for the employee to simply say that they would rather not work on a public holiday, particularly those industries where it is expected that you will be trading on a public holiday. Um, there are those provisions in the NES, in the public holidays provisions of the NES. Um, those reasons are spelt out uh, within um, the NES in the public holidays provisions of, um, of the NES. Okay, the next question is, if we close at 2am, are we required to provide transport for employees who do not um, 
who do the closing shift, sorry, do the closing shift. Um, this would depend on the award. Um, in the hospitality award, for example, uh, as I've got there on the screen, uh, it has a working late clause, uh, which says that um, it applies to an employee doing the following. The employee finishes work at a time at which it is unreasonable for them to travel to the usual place of residence by their regular means of transport and the employee is not provided by the, sorry, the employee is not provided by the employer with accommodation or a means of transport to the usual place of residence at no cost to the employee. The employer must pay the employee um, the reasonable cost of transport to their usual place of residence. So that's the provision in the hospitality award. It, in the, it's in the registered and licensed clubs award as well. Um, so um, in the absence of any other information to the contrary, the employer should be required to cover the cost for transporting the employee home if they couldn't get home via their normal means. Um, this often applies in um, uh, metropolitan areas, uh, not so much in regional areas. A simple way to negate this obligation is to have a question regarding transport or access to a vehicle in the interview, uh, prefaced on the basis of a duty of care to ensure the employees working late have a safe way of being able to get home. Um, again, uh, it, it's all about the duty of care. Uh, the next question is, if we provide our staff a uniform, are we required to provide them with laundry money? Um, and the answer to that question can be found in the awards. Uh, in the hospitality award, for example, um, you are required, sorry, if you require an employee to wear a uniform, then you're required to either launder the uniform for them or reimburse the employee for the cost of laundering the uniform themselves, which can be done via a laundry allowance or an agreed amount for reimbursement. Um, it's noted that the, the agreed amount generally should not be less than that specified laundry allowance amount. Um, again, your specific award will provide more um, guidance. Uh, as I've got up there, the hospitality award, if the employee, um, is responsible for laundering any uh, special laundry, uh, special clothing uh, that's required to be worn by them. The employee must pay the employee a weekly laundry allowance of an amount, an amount agreed between the employer and the employee, or in the absence of an agreement mentioned in clause 26.6 C1, reimburse the employee for the cost of laundering any item of special clothing. For this purpose, the employer may require the employee to show evidence of that cost. If a catering employer requires, this is under the hospitality award, of course, uh, requires an employee, including airport catering employee, uh, to be responsible for laundering any special clothing that's required to be worn by them, the employer must pay the employee a laundry allowance of $6 per week for a full-time employee and $2.05 for each uniform for part-time or casual employee. If a motel employee is resp responsible for laundering any special clothing that's required to be worn by them, the employer must pay the employee an allow a laundry allowance of $2.40 for each uniform, up to $7.45 per week. Um, the club's award also has similar provisions in there as well. Um, 
although the club's award says that they must be reimbursed um, and for for laundering. So um, it would depend. There is an industry standard uh, in relation to clubs, uh, and we can talk about that a little bit later on. But at this point in time, it simply says um, uh, re reimbursed. Okay. That's our lunch and learn for today. Hopefully you've got some, um, uh, some answers and out of that you're, you're um, satisfied with those answers. Happy to take any questions, give us a call or send us an email and we're happy to uh, answer any questions as well.